tonight we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, finish the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night. We're going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. I really think it's the backbone uh, of our church. We're in Hebrews 12, verse 18. Next week, we'll start the book of James. So if you want to start reading ahead uh, and studying the book of James, we'll start James next week. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that you are the God who communicates with us. We thank you for the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus, you are the one who is preeminent. And we ask that you would do your work in our lives tonight, that you would speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In conclusion, we find the end of the book of Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews. Would you agree that endings are important? The end of a song is important. Have you ever heard a band where they come to the end and they just kind of miss it? Where the drummer's ending at one point and the electric guitar's ending at another and the piano ends at another, but then also when a band all ends at the same time, at the same note. An end of a book is really important. The end of a movie. Have you ever invested a couple hours in a movie and it just leaves you on a cliffhanger? Like it really doesn't end. There's no conclusion, and you can almost hear them laughing in Hollywood, like, I got you, ha, 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 there's no ending to this movie, and you're like, what a waste of time, you know? Come on, wrap this sucker up. We, we want an ending to, to this movie. And so the ending is important, and the end of the book of Hebrews is important as well. So let's look at verse 18 of chapter 12. It says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so, much as beasts touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. We contrast Mount Sinai with Mount Zion, Mount Calvary, where Christ was crucified. And the author of Hebrews, ultimately the Holy Spirit, is saying, which mountain do you live on? Remember, this is a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians who'd gotten saved, and their temptation was to go back underneath the law, to relate to God through Mount Sinai, where the law was given, instead of Mount Zion, where Christ was crucified, to receive the grace of God. It's our tendency over time to always go back to a rules-based relationship with God. Our flesh likes it. There's pride there. There's comfortability there. But God wants us living in his grace. And what we see here about Mount Sinai, it was a place of fear and trembling. Not even a beast could touch the mountain. And if a beast touched the mountain, they would be killed, shot uh, with an arrow. In verse 21, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Deuteronomy 9 verse 19 Moses was trembling at the judgment of the Lord. And the law has its place in our relationship with God. It drives us to our need for God's grace and his forgiveness and Christ to be crucified for our sins. Contrast with us, new covenant, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. You have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the grace of God. You've come to Calvary where Christ was crucified to you, for you, and the city of the living God, and the heavenly Jerusalem. So Mount Zion points to the kingdom of God, it 
points to heavenly Jerusalem where there is an innumerable company of angels. Let's contrast the two, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai was fear and trembling. Mount Zion is a place of love and forgiveness. Mount Sinai is a desert. Mount Zion is the city of the living God. Mount Sinai spoke of earthly things. Mount Zion speaks of heavenly things. At Mount Sinai, only Moses was allowed to draw near to God. At Mount Zion, a numeral company, a general assembly is invited to draw near. Mount Sinai was characterized by guilt, men in fear. Mount Zion features just men made perfect by grace. At Mount Sinai, Moses was the mediator. At Mount Zion, Jesus is the mediator. At Mount Sinai brings an old covenant, which is ratified by blood and animals. Mount Zion brings a new covenant, which is ratified by the blood of God's precious Son. So we see that it's much more important for us to be living and dwelling in Mount Zion. In verse 23, to the general assembly and to the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant of the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel, who's murdered, By his brother Cain, his blood speaks. What does the blood of Jesus Christ speak? Much greater forgiveness of sins. And this is quite the invitation that's been given to us. That God has made us perfect in verse 23. That Jesus is our mediator of the new covenant through his blood. And so this wraps up the book of Hebrews, if you've been studying this one with us, that Jesus is the faithful and merciful high priest. That he is the one who is greater than. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if he did not escape who refused him on the earthly, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. So if there was fear and trembling with Mount Sinai, how much more so fear and trembling through Mount Zion because Jesus speaks, the author of grace. I think grace speaks louder than the law and judgment. If someone serves you, they unconditionally love you. If they pay the price for your sin and your mistake, how foolish to not listen to that person. Amen? And so here's this exhortation. There's this grace that's provided in Jesus, but don't turn away from him. Don't minimize him. Don't go back under the law. Don't lose your focus upon Christ. Verse 26 and 27, whose voice then shook the earth, speaking of Mount Sinai, but now he is promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So God is promising a time of shaking. Now this is, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Paraphrase, God is continually shaking the things of the world so that the things that are unshakable remain. How do we appreciate Mount Zion? How do we appreciate the new covenant? How do we find ourselves consistently anchored in Jesus Christ? God shakes things up in our lives. And when he shakes things up in our lives, we go, Jesus, you are the chief cornerstone that doesn't change. You are my refuge. You are my rock. Heaven is sure. So what do we know this side of heaven? Things are going to get shaky. That's what God does. 
He shakes nations. He shakes jobs. He shakes families. He shakes health situations. Why? Because he loves us, and he says, I want you to put your soul in what's unshakable. What's comforting is all of the things of this world, governments, nations, jobs, health, relationship, it can't change who Jesus is. And that's what we'll see in the next chapter, that he's always with us and he's unchanging. Verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and holy fear. So we have an unshakable kingdom. We've received grace. Our response to grace is reverence. Our response to grace is godly fear. God, I want to serve you. God, you've won me with your grace. Sometimes we need to be reminded that Jesus desires and really commands lordship in our lives. He demands to be our Lord, to be upon the throne of our life. And that's the proper place for Jesus to be. And it's a daily decision to say, Jesus, I want to serve you. I want you to have your proper place in my life. And this is reflected in verse 29. For God is a consuming fire. There's an element of fear here, of respect, of reverence. But there's also of great comfort. When we think about serving God with reverence and godly fear, completely surrendering We get this picture of God being the consuming fire that engulfs us as we're a sacrifice upon his altar. But it's not a fire of destruction. It's a fire of his love. It's a fire that we can trust. But again, because he's our Lord, he wants all of us. He wants to consume all of us. He wants control of us. He he waits for us to surrender to him. Much better to surrender to God and allow him to consume us in his love than to harden our hearts against Christ and have him consume us in his judgment. He's the consuming fire. We go into chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. We need to be reminded of this. That we're brothers and sisters in Christ and let brotherly love continue. I'm blessed to have an older brother and a younger sister. My older brother's 22 months older. My sister's nine years younger. And there's something incredible about having siblings, isn't it? And there's that, that brotherly, sisterly love that comes from, from siblings. And I know when things are down and things are difficult, both my brother and my sister are, are there for me. My older brother had such a, a gracious policy. He was the only one who was allowed to beat me up, right? You know? He would pound on me and I would pound on him, but we didn't let anybody else pound on on each other. I let my brother-in-law know on a regular basis if he hurts my sister, him and I are going on a missions trip to Mexico. And he's not coming back, right? Because that brotherly love, it's strong. And if you were to see me around my siblings, I'd be joking around with them, but there's there's a deep, deep love there. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to be that for one another. We need to be reminded, let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, many have unwittedly entertained angels. You never know. You could be in the presence of an angel. The message of verse 2 is this, that a stranger could actually be an angel. So be kind to strangers because you could be entertaining an angel. It takes us a little bit back to the beginning of our study of Hebrews, 
where there's a chapter that's dedicated to angels, they're ministering spirits. There was this tendency to elevate angels above Christ, and Christ are, is definitely superior to angels, but they're ministering spirits to encourage and aid believers. And so this is pretty far out, you know? It's like, okay, this is a bit humbling. I, I want to make sure I'm being kind to strangers because I could be entertaining an angel. And verse 3, remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. There's a tendency to forget about Christians who are being persecuted. And the church here, the Hebrew church, is encouraged and exhorted, remember those who are in chains as if you were enchained with them. And we're seeing a rise of persecution upon Christians throughout the world. Uh, some say that persecution is at one of the highest levels that, that it's been. And that may be hard for us to imagine living here in the United States, but in, in the Middle East, there's, there's a tremendous amount of persecution in Egypt, in, in Libya, in Iraq, and in, in Syria. And we see groups like ISIS, terrorist groups going in and mass murdering uh, Christians. And the exhortation here is don't forget them. You know, pray for them, be willing to help them. And trust that God's doing a great work through that persecution. But there's many believers who are losing their lives because of their commitment to Christ. Verse 4, marriage is honorable among all. So pause and consider that a little bit. In this conclusion of Hebrews, we're getting some rapid fire instruction as we respond to the grace of God. What does it mean to serve God? In godly reverence, well, marriage is honorable among all. If you're married, do you honor your marriage among all? You know, do your, do your kids know that your marriage comes first? That that's your first commitment, even over being a parent? Uh, do your parents know that your commitment to your spouse is even greater than your commitment to them? You've decided to leave and cleave because that's what God's word says. Is your marriage honored amongst your friends. You know, when you speak of your spouse around your friends, do you, do you speak of them in a, a way that honors them? You know, ladies, do your girlfriends know that you honor your marriage? You know, men, do your guy friends know that you, you honor your marriage? And this is what God, God calls us to, is that to make sure that we're treating our spouse in a way that we're honoring our spouse, that we're honoring marriage uh, among all. And then goes on to say, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Satan wants to destroy our lives. We know that, don't we? And one of the ways he does that is through sexual sin. God designed sex. It was his idea, and he designed it to be expressed inside of the commitment between a man and a woman in marriage. There it's honorable. It's blessed to become one, and they're built up, and they're edified. So you need to know that as a married couple, that that's a healthy part of your relationship. You want to guard that. You want to invest in that. That's an important part of, of your relationships. It's what's to take place only between you and your spouse. It's very sacred, and it's very special. So what does Satan do to rip us off? Before we're married, he tries to get us into bed with somebody that's not our spouse. Fornication, right? And then once you're married, he wants to keep you out of bed with your spouse because he knows it's good for your marriage. It's good for you. 
And you may be in a place in your marriage where you go, you know, we just have kind of set that aside. We don't really need that in our, in our marriage. Well, the Bible says you do. <laughs> the Bible says it's an important part of your marriage. It's not about the physical. It's about the expression of heart of one to another. So make time for it and, and invest in it. And our culture is so busy. We're running from place to place. And sometimes you go, we don't even have time, right? Well, the Bible says make time. That, that's a priority, right? You might have to look at your weekly commitment and go, well, we don't even have time to talk to each other, so it's going to be difficult to have sex if we don't even talk, right? Some of the guys are going, I don't know. That sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> and the ladies are like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? It's, it's an expression of relationship. So if you're not talking and communicating and there's not affection, then of course, that's going to lead to a lack of, of intimacy. And so realize inside of marriage, it's godly. You have the green light, and that's where sexuality is to take place. But outside of marriage, God says that he will judge fornicators and adulterers. Now, please hear this. God loves you. He's got your best interest in mind. He's not trying to rob you of joy. So if you're single... You're not to be having sex until you're married. If you really love that person and they really love you, get married. In Jesus' name, get married. And enjoy God's blessing inside of marriage. What, what are you waiting for, right? But if you're not married, ask God to give you the self-control because if you enter into sex with one another, you're actually de destroying each other's soul. And then... As a married couple, you exclusively share sex only with your spouse. Adultery is sex with somebody else. Infidelity inside a marriage. Fornication is entering into a sexual relationship before marriage. I know this is incredibly old-fashioned, but it's incredibly good. It's incredibly good. When are we going to believe and submit to God's instructions on sex. Does the world, unbelievers, really have the market on this? How's this going, you know, with everybody sleeping around with everybody and not waiting till they're married and cheating on their spouse? No, it's just leading to destruction. So if you find yourself out of bounds of God's instruction, good news, get in bounds. <laughs> Choose to obey the Lord. Receive his forgiveness. Align your life up with, with his plan. If there's adultery that needs to be repented of, man, repent. If there's fornication, repent. Because God will judge because he loves you. Because he loves me. And he wants you to experience the fullest. And guess what, gang? God can restore. Broken and humble hearts that turn to him, God can restore. He can restore marriages where there's been adultery. He can restore relationships where there's been fornication. It's been a joy to walk with couples that come into our offices and they're, they're living together and they're believers. They're in fornication. Lay out God's word and say, guys, you need to move out. You need to commit to sexual purity. To see what God then does in their relationship as they choose to walk in sexual purity. Get off on the right feet. Get married. And see God bless them in an in abundant way. It's never too late to walk in God's word. Amen? And as much as it's countercultural, 
God can equip you to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. God's not going to ask us to do something that's not possible. So if you say, okay, this is possible because God has commanded it and he'll give me the power to be able to do it. One other step that I think is really important if you find yourself in sexual sin and you want to get right with God is tell another believer. Men, open up with other men. Women, open up with other women that you know love the Lord because if you really want to get out, you're going to need some help from some brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to need some brotherly love. You're going to need some sisterly love, some accountability that says, okay, I'm glad you opened up to me. Now let's walk in this path of of purity. In verse 5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The context is interesting. God touches on relationships, then he touches on contentment. If you're single, you may be going, man, this is so difficult. I've got to abstain from sex and my singleness until God brings me a spouse. I'm really struggling with contentment. And Jesus says, I'm enough. You can be content in your singleness. For others of you that maybe find yourself in a difficult marriage, and you read this and you go, man, I've got to be faithful to my spouse. You may be struggling with discontentment. And here Jesus says, I'm enough. That's the essence of verse 5 is let your lifestyle be without covetousness, for he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Christ is enough. We're going to study this this weekend in Philippians 4. We're going to finish the book of Philippians and spend most of our time Saturday and Sunday talking about contentment. And the Apostle Paul said, I have learned to be content. Why? Because contentment is not a natural born behavior. How do we know? Spend time with toddlers. By nature, they're not content, right? By nature, we are not content. We have to learn to be content. We have to learn to focus upon Christ and say, Christ, you're enough. So it may be relationally you're struggling with discontentment. It may be financially. could be vocationally. We all struggle with covetousness and discontentment and say, Lord, I want to learn the lesson of contentment. Our greatest tool is prayer, to go to the Lord and say, God, help me to learn contentment. Help me to focus upon you. Sometimes we just wish we were in a different season of life. We get tired of the challenges that face us in our daily life. And God would want us to be content and say, Lord, please help me. Help me to be content with this is the season that I'm in. This is exactly where you want me to be at this point in time. To the degree that I enjoy fellowship with Jesus is to the degree I'll be content. Let me say that again. To the degree I fellowship with Jesus is the degree that I'll be content. If I'm discontent, I really have a worship problem because my focus is off of Christ. Because if my focus is upon Christ, he's more than enough. What a great promise of God's grace that he'll never leave you or forsake you. I know I'm hard to deal with, right? Do you know you're hard to deal with? Have you come to that revelation about yourself, right? I get tired of myself, you know? And here Jesus loves me enough, and he's saying, Eric, I never leave you. In your sinful moments, your rebellious moments, your ugly moments, I'm there with you. I love you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So our response in verse 6 is, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. 
I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quote from Psalms 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. Because he's with me, he's promised to help me. I won't fear, and I won't fear what man can do. We, we sang tonight that we're no longer a slave to fear. May that be more than just words that we sing, but a reality in my life. I don't have to fear what man will do to me because the Lord is with me and he's my helper. Some more practical instructions. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, consider the outcome of their conduct. This is speaking of your spiritual leaders, your pastors, your mentors, of showing appreciation to those that have invested in you in a spiritual manner. I really see spiritual leaders and pastors as helpers of joy. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24, it says, Not that we have dominion over your faith, Paul speaking, but we are fellow workers for you, for by faith you stand. He says, no, we're not trying to lord over you. We're trying to be a helper of your joy. And if you've been blessed to have that kind of influence in your life, then the encouragement is to remember them, to be appreciative towards them, follow their faith. If they're walking in faith, that's an, an example. But also be wise, consider the outcome of their conduct. You should be a fruit inspector, not for judgment, you know, not to, to judge, but to say, is this somebody that I can trust to be able to be a spiritual influence in my life? In verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Great timing for this verse. You appreciate pastors, you appreciate spiritual leaders, but there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. No mentor, no pastor, no leader is Jesus. Jesus is the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unshakable. He doesn't change. The world changes. We change. Everything changes around us, but he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is very comforting. We think of past generations. How did they get through the difficult, dark days? Jesus. He was the refuge. He was the tower. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's the answer for us here in 2017? Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, there wasn't Facebook 50 years ago. There wasn't Twitter 20 years ago. It, the internet was just coming on the scene and the, the mid-90s. No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Society changes, technology changes, but he's always the answer. There were a time when people got around with horse and buggy. And people got around with cars. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's, he's the answer. Verse 9, don't be carried away with various with various and strange doctrines. There's always false teachings that are going to come at you. So how do you filter them? Through the word of God. Know your Bible. Know the Gospels. Know the book of Acts, the epistles. Does it line up with who you know Jesus to be? If it sounds weird, it probably is weird. And inspect it a little bit more. You know, if you get those red flags, you're like, I'm not sure about this. I, I've never heard, heard this before. Dig in deeper and find out if it's in the word of God. Don't be carried away by some strange teaching. Continuing with verse 9, For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Again, this temptation to go under the law, be held in bondage to a kosher diet. No, let your heart be established in grace. Don't have confidence in, in the law. Is your heart established in grace? 
man, I hope you read the word out of enjoyment, how to grow in your relationship with God. I hope it's a discipline in our lives, but I hope that God's favor, you know that God's favor hasn't changed if you missed your devotions. I hope you love Wednesday nights. I hope you love what God's doing here. Hope you're committed to coming as you are here in the middle of the summer. But guess what? If you don't come on a Wednesday, God loves you just as much. Your heart's established in grace. We get to be here. We don't, we don't have to be here. That, that's the essence of this verse. Let your heart be established in grace, not your own works. In verse 10, for we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Speaking of Exodus 24 and also Leviticus 14 and 16, a greater sacrifice, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his blood, sanctified is to be set apart, suffered outside the gate. So the sacrifices were taken outside of the camp. Jesus was taken outside of the temple. He was taken outside of the gate of the city and was crucified just outside of the city to cleanse us, to set us apart through the power of his blood. Therefore, we're to follow Christ. Let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Jesus became reproach to die for our sins upon the cross. So if I'm following Christ and he's the Lord of my life, that means that I too will become a reproach. I'm currently in my devotions reading Jeremiah, and that guy got his can kicked for the Lord. I mean, he had a tough message to give to the nation of Israel. It wasn't very popular. But yet he was faithful to speak the word of God. And we're living in a time where it may become more less and less popular to be a Christian, are you willing to bear reproach for the name of Christ? Not that we go out looking for it, but do you know in your family, if you follow Christ, it could result in reproach? Well, praise the Lord, follow Christ. Do you know maybe in your job, if you live out a Christian life, that it might mean that you become a reproach? Well, we'll praise the Lord. And that's the encouragement here is be willing to go outside the camp. Be, be willing to, to be isolated and, and be a reproach in, in following his example. Therefore, we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Cities are interesting, the rise and fall of cities. You've probably been up to Cripple Creek, hopefully not to gamble, <laughs> but to check out the history and the mines, and you see the pictures that are there in Cripple Creek, and it was a booming town, wasn't it? In the late, teen, late 1800s, early 1900s, and now it's really a shadow of, of a city. You go to some of the ghost towns throughout Colorado, and it's like, boosh, they're, they're gone. They're, they're done. Detroit, this amazing city, one of the more wealthy cities in the world. You go through some of those neighborhoods now, and you could tell, this was a really, really nice house. And now it's a ruin right here in the United States, and trees are growing up, and grass is growing up, and you see pheasants you're like, what am I doing seeing pheasants in downtown Detroit? Because we have no continuing city. Cities come and go, this side of heaven, but we seek the one to come. We seek the heavenly city that can't be shaken. Verse 15 is worth highlighting, worth memorizing. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. By him, by Jesus, who he is the new covenant of grace, 
the promise of his presence, because of Jesus, we can continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Maybe circle the word sacrifice because you don't always feel like praising God with your lips of being thankful. It's a choice of the will that's not always based on the emotions. Sometimes the emotions are there, and that's great. You feel all the warm fuzzies about the goodness of God, and you can't help but sing. But there's other times where you just feel terrible. And what do you want to do? Remember Philippians? Murmur, 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 murmur. Complain, complain. This is terrible. This is the worst. And those are those moments where we want to take our thoughts captive and begin to offer up the sacrifice of praise. God, I I don't really feel like praising, but I know you're good. So I'm giving you the fruit of my lips. And there's power in praise. Speaking it, saying it, declaring it. God wants us to sing. He commands us to sing. He wants us to, to be thankful. By him, not our circumstances, we offer up the fruit of our lips. Verse 16, do not forget to do good and to share, for which such sacrifices God is well pleased. He's pleased with the sacrifice of praise, but he's also pleased when you do good and you share. God loves a generous heart. Bless others in in Jesus' name. Do good to others in Jesus' name. Christ notice, and he's pleased with those actions. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give an account, let them do so with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. This is where we find pastoral leadership, elders, inside of the church. So as you're committed to a church family, then that church has pastors and elders, and you're encouraged, we're encouraged through the word of God, obey those who rule over you and and be submissive. Accept their spiritual leadership as they're guiding you inside of, of the word of God. And then in turn, there's an exhortation to pastors and elders that we're gonna give an account for how we lead. That God wants us to watch over your souls, to love you and care for you and encourage you and exhort you from the word of God. And someday, myself and the other pastors and the board of elders here at RMC, we're going to have to stand before God and he's going to say, give an account for your life, but also give an account for your position that I entrusted to you as a pastor. Now, that's a sobering thing. In James chapter 3, it says, don't let very many of you become teachers because you're going to have a stricter judgment. So we're going to have to give an account to the Lord. And then God tells us the attitude in which we're to pastor, with joy and not grief. So we're not to walk around and go, oh, pastoring is so hard. You know, pastoring would be great if it wasn't for the people. I mean, man, just, I love the word of God, but the people, they're just so hard to deal with. And sheep bite. Oh, they hurt. Ah, you know, all these, I'm just, I, I, you sometimes you get a sense from pastors that they really just want to do something else, but they haven't found the opportunity yet, you know? It's like somehow I ended up a pastor, but I really wish that I had a job doing something else. And if, if someone just would offer me a job, something else, then, then I'd take it and I, and I would do it. And so God's encouragement to us is do it with joy, because if we're not doing it with joy, then it's not profitable to you, the body of Christ. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. 
We're praying for you as a pastoral team and elders and all. We're so thankful that you're praying for us. And we know that you're praying for us. And, and we desire to live out verse 18. We want to have a good conscience and live honorably before God and men. But I especially urge you to do this that I may be restored to you sooner. Seems to be under a difficult circumstance that keeps the author of Hebrews from being with this church. But we don't know what those circumstances are. We don't know for sure who the human author is. In verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. I love this. The God of peace who's raised Jesus from the dead. So what is my circumstance in light of the resurrection? Manageable. <laughs> it's manageable for God because he's defeated sin and the grave. Once again, we find this beautiful balance of understanding God's raised up pastors and elders inside of the church, but who's the great shepherd? Jesus. So your eyes are on Jesus. Thankful for pastors and leaders, willing to have them input, but ultimately your eyes are on Jesus and you're following Jesus. You've probably heard me say this before, but I want to encourage you. Don't put your eyes on a pastor. Don't put your eyes on an elder. Put your eyes on Jesus. I'll let you down if I haven't already. You probably have a list of pastors that have hurt you and let you down. Pastors are sinners. We're sinners, just like everybody else is sinners. But Jesus is perfect. I talk to a lot of people that say, you know, I've given up on church. I've given up on Christ because this believer hurt me. No, we don't follow believers. We follow Jesus. And to be able to say, I can put my eyes on Jesus and I can commit to a local church because Jesus has asked me to. Jesus has asked me to fellowship with believers. So I'm here because of Jesus. He's the great shepherd, which means he wants to shepherd you. Psalms 23, take a look at it tonight. You know it well. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Pray that over yourself and those that you love and say, Jesus, would you lead me to green pastures? Would you restore my soul? Would you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? He's longing to be our great shepherd. In verse 21, this is the work of Jesus in your life. Make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. God is in the business of growing us, maturing us, completing us, so we could do every good work that Christ could be glorified. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I'm written to you in few words. <laughs> I felt like Hebrews was kind of long. <laughs> but apparently the author of Hebrews says, hey, bear with me. I know I've exhorted you. You, you almost hear that loving heart of a father. I know this has been a tough conversation, you know, but I've done it because I, I've loved you. And I could have said a lot more. <laughs> Verse 23. Know that our brother Timothy has been set free. So apparently Timothy was in prison with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you. Amen. So the author of the book of Hebrews finds himself in Italy at this time. Seems to be indications that it could be the Apostle Paul. We don't know that for sure. He doesn't list that. I think God wants the attention to be upon Jesus, not a human author. It's been wonderful to go through the book of Hebrews 
And this is what I hope that you're established in, in conclusion, is the new covenant of God's grace. There is a tendency, a strong tendency, to get our eyes off of Christ and to get focused on other things, sometimes good things. Angels. Are they good? Yes. But they're not to be our worship. They're not to be our focus. Our focus is to to be on Christ. It's easy to get back into a rules-based relationship with God where we're living on Mount Sinai, where we feel like God's the employer and we're the employee and we've put in this certain amount of of time uh, before the Lord. So be in that place of being established in God's grace and living upon Mount, Mount Sinai. So we are going to do something different, I believe, right now. Is Dan, are you at the sound booth, Dan Champion? Can you guys go grab Dan for me? Uh, I was supposed to do a video during announcements, and I forgot. And it is an important video. So we're going to roll that video, and this is a ministry opportunity. And then when the video is done, feel free to stand and enter into worship and into communion. With this video is right here in our community. It's a care portal. It's a website. Uh, And so what you're able to do, if you'd like to, is go and register on this website. And needs from the community come to that website and you're you're able to respond. And it's specifically to do with kids in foster care and the families that care for those kids. So you're not signing up to be a foster parent. But say someone gets a call and they're taking in three kids under the age of five, uh, and they need a, a crib and some blankets and some jackets, and you have a heart to, to meet that need. So uh, a couple from our church is involved in this ministry. Uh, they're at the table in the foyer. So as you watch the video uh, and you feel led to be involved in it, man, please do so and, and check with them. So let's stand and let's pray. Well, actually, stay seated. Stay seated because you're going to watch a video. I'm going to pray. You watch the video. After the video, stand and enjoy communion and worship. Thankfully, we live under the Mount Zion of grace because I have broken the law this evening. So, Dan, do we have that video? Okay, let's pray and then we'll roll it. Father, we just thank you for grace. We thank you that we can live in grace and enjoy grace. As we've gone through the book of Hebrews, we pray that you bring real fruit in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this ministry that's reaching out to our community. Lord, would you speak to our hearts, those that are being called to be involved. Would you bless our time in communion? In Jesus' name, 